Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Today, we're starting a little series on the upcoming local elections. Stay tuned for our next episode with the city council candidates. But today, we're kicking things off with incumbent state delegate Sally Hudson. She's running unopposed for the Virginia House of Delegates District 57, which covers most of the city of Charlottesville. I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Sarah Howarth, who conducted this interview. My name is Sally Hudson. So, I would love to start by asking, what's the thing that surprised you most about joining the state government? Well, I think that public service is full of surprises every day because you get to work with an extraordinary range of people from all walks of life. Every stripe of Virginian will fall in your door at some time if you're in public service. And so, in some ways, I think the the best part of public service is that it, it keeps you on your toes all the time and you get to meet um, new people of all kinds. So, I mean, in some ways, what's something that surprised you, there's a new surprise every day. And I think that that's really one of the fantastic things about um, being in public services is getting to meet and then help connect and support all of those different corners of our community. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it keeps you on your toes, which must be kind of refreshing. Especially for anybody who's been in public service in the last two years, there was never a dull moment. I'm sure. And what would you say are your major accomplishments from your first term? Well, we got an awful lot done in the last two years because there's been a bottleneck in Virginia government because of really gerrymandering of the last decade. Virginians were electing Democrats to statewide office for the last 10 or more years, but we didn't have Democratic control of the General Assembly until 2020. And so there's been a long list of things that we got done in the last two years that Virginians have been clamoring for for a long time, whether that was making Virginia a nationwide leader in voting rights to passing long overdue gun safety reforms, protecting reproductive rights here in the Commonwealth, dramatically expanding our investment in clean energy, raising the minimum wage, prohibiting LGBT discrimination. The the list goes on and on. We've gotten an awful lot done, and I hope that they send us back this fall so we can keep up the good work. What's something that you changed your mind about during your first term, if anything? Oh, I think if you're doing public service right, you change your mind uh, a lot. You stay rooted in, in your values and your community. But I think good public service means having open ears and an open mind so you can learn about the needs of different people. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that has sharpened for me especially it has been how I think I feel about the, the citizen legislator model we have of public service in Virginia. I think that it can be tempting to romanticize a government where everybody has two jobs and, and has one work life and then sort of does public service on the side. Um, I think one of the things that has really become clear to me now that I'm in this work is just how much it matters that we have professional public servants who can dedicate their full time to this job. Because when we force everybody to wear two hats, um, not only do we put public service out of reach for a lot of people because they um, can't make ends meet while holding down one job and doing another that doesn't pay, um, but also that we really bake conflicts of interest into everybody's professional life because everybody has a second job. And so you can't have a truly independent legislature 
if everybody also has to serve two roles. So in, you know, in, in our community, for example, I also work for the largest employer in my district. And so if you wanted your legislator to be a completely independent overseer of our state university, I've got a foot in both worlds. And that's an advantage and a connection to our community sometimes, but it's also a place where you might want some distance. And so if everybody in the legislature also has another gig, um, I think it, it sometimes creates blurry boundaries between our two jobs in a way that, that makes things challenging. That's honestly really interesting. I've never thought about it like that before, so I really appreciate your perspective. And what are some policy areas that you think particularly affect Charlottesville and your constituents? Everything. I think one of the best things about serving this community is is just how energetic and innovative we are. And so whether we're talking about new strategies for supporting affordable housing or for confronting the climate crisis or taking dramatic action to reform our justice system, all of the above are things that Charlottesville is um, eager to invest in and eager um, to accelerate the pace of change in Virginia. If you had a wand and could change one law, governing norm, or a state constitution maybe, what would it be and why? I think if I could wave a wand, I would professionalize Virginia's legislature and make it year-round. Because I think some people have an attitude that if the government only meets for a little while, then we get we, we get rid of professional politicians. But that's not true. Um, what We always have professional politicians. We just call them lobbyists. They're people who are paid to work full time on affecting how government works. And so right now our professional politicians can't be held accountable at a ballot box. And so I, I would love to see Virginia move to a year-round legislature because Virginians live year-round and they deserve to have public servants who do too. Um, and to make that uh, a much more even battle, I think, between uh, the people who are, are serving in accountable elected positions and uh, the, the lobbying corps who really runs the show in some ways behind the scenes in Richmond. If re-elected, what are your top three priorities for your next term? I think the top priority for the next governor in Virginia has got to be school finance reform, and they're going to need support from the General Assembly to do that work. Virginia has some of the top public schools in the country, but is vastly unequal, and we have corners of the Commonwealth where the schools are literally crumbling. And so we have got to do that work, and we have got to dramatically increase compensation for our teachers and the vital staff in all our schools. Um, In Virginia right now, we have the least competitive teacher pay in the country, full stop bottom of the barrel worst in the nation. And that's because we pay our educators too little and we have a pretty high cost of living state. And the combination of the two means that a lot of people can't afford to be in public education. And so if we're doing right by our citizens, by our students, um, we need to be putting more support behind our, our educators. And especially now um, when they are being asked to do so much and to help so many kids navigate and recover from the last couple years of learning loss, um, now more than ever, we really need to step up and get their backs. Education is extremely important, and I totally agree. Are there another two things that you've been focusing on lately? Um, I think that especially for our community here in Charlottesville, we need to really continue to be a strong leading voice in Richmond for confronting our climate crisis. 
um, because I think there's there's no district in Virginia that is more vocal about that work and also more deeply involved in addressing the problem because we are a hub for clean energy firms and a lot of the really innovative projects that make that possible. And so I'd love to continue to support our community in stepping up into that role. Um, and then I would say, I think, continuing our, our democracy reform work from the last two years, not just making it easy to vote, but confronting rampant problems in our campaign finance system so that everybody has an equal voice and continuing to dismantle some of the kind of old school corruption in Virginia that prevents everyday people from having the kind of really responsive governance they deserve. How do you think navigating COVID-19 is going to affect people getting out to the polls and kind of being active in the community? And how could we maybe reform that a little bit? So I think Virginia has made huge strides on that in the last year when a lot of states had a lot of trouble doing their elections during COVID because we had passed really broad early voting protections and made it easy for people to vote by mail or drop off their ballots in a drop box. We sort of have a a COVID election under our belt already from 2020, and it, it went really well. And so I think that we have to continue to do that and and make clear to Virginians that there are lots of safe and easy and convenient ways to vote. Um, I think we're really fortunate right now in Virginia to be living in a heyday of ballot access. Have you had to kind of adapt your campaign or things you've been focusing on to work within the boundaries of COVID-19? Totally. I mean, public service is all about being out with people and getting to meet them where they're at and have them talk to you in whatever environment makes them more comfortable. And so it's really tricky to do that when we're trying to stay apart to keep each other safe. I mean, I think especially some of the people who need to hear from you most are folks who are elderly or struggling with health conditions or working around the clock. And those are the people who are are least able and safe right now to um, be together. So uh, absolutely, I think that COVID has strained our ability to have those those really tight in-person connections, but we're doing everything that we can to be outside and be masked and meet people remotely um, so we can continue having building those bonds and, and doing that work as best we can. I was on your website and I saw that you're also pretty active on social media, and that's really nice in reaching people that are college age and honestly beyond. Has that shown any effects of reaching out to more people and getting people to know what you're all about? Absolutely. I mean, I when I first ran for office in 2019, I really don't think that a candidate like me might have been possible in a pre-social media world because platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram have democratized access to broad media. And so I think in a sort of more old school setting, if the the big reporters and the TV stations didn't know who you were. It was a lot harder to get your voice and your message out. But now anybody with a phone in their pocket can let people know what they think and can really get to tap into what is authentically at the top of people's minds. And so I think that a lot of young and upstart candidates like me came of age politically in a social media era where you could create those connections, even if you didn't have a a big profile or a famous name. That's really interesting. And I see you're also an advocate for changing some of our election laws. Can you talk more about that and why these reforms are so important? Sure. So when democracy works well, lots of people get to have their voice heard by, by politicians who are trying to represent them well. 
And that means that democracy dies when politicians don't think they have to be accountable to the people they serve. And right now we have way too many elections that just aren't competitive. Either only one person runs or two people run, but, you know, one of them has no shot at winning because the the partisan dimensions are are that split. Uh, We've had gerrymandering, which which cuts up communities and prevents people from really knowing who their neighbors are and um, making their elected officials accountable to those people. So for all of those reasons and more, we've really weakened the ties between the electorate and the elected officials. And so that's why I think it's so important that we have campaign finance reform and, and independent redistricting and ranked choice voting and all these things that can make it possible for elections to be more competitive so that the, the best ideas and the most energetic and responsive candidates rise to the top. And what has your strategy been for communicating with constituents during the pandemic? You've already talked about this a bit, but if you'd like to say more, that'd be great. I do my best to reach people on whatever platform they're on. So whether that is email newsletters or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or catching them at a town hall or a a farmer's market, whatever it is that, that gets them out. I think that's a big part of your job is to be where people are. So you're one term in. Do you hope to stay in politics? What are your long term goals? You know, if anybody had asked me four years ago if I would be doing this job right now, I would have laughed. I would have had no idea at the time. Um, And so I don't expect that my projections have gotten any better for four years from now. Um, All I know is that for now, I, I feel very fortunate to be doing this work and to be serving this community and would sure like to stick at it. I saw you're an assistant professor at UVA, too. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So I'm an economist by trade. I'm a labor economist, which means I do stuff on workforce and student debt and wages and all that. And that's what I was doing. And that was the work I thought I would have been doing four years ago. Um, So, you know, long before I had considered running for public office. And so now, because we have this split legislature where everybody has another full-time job, um, I teach half-time at UVA and then serve in the spring in Richmond. Awesome. And do you have anything you'd like to say to the listeners before we wrap up? No, just that everybody needs to remember how much their state government matters. I think if there were ever a time where people had to know why it matters who their governor is or who's in their state assembly, it has to be now because we see states doing radically different things to address the COVID pandemic. And there are states where people's basic health and safety is threatened every day because their government doesn't care about abiding by sound science or being accountable to the electorate. And so if you think that the White House is the sole thing that matters on your ballot, that couldn't be further from the truth. And in Virginia, we do our state elections in these odd numbered years. So um, every seat in the House is on the ballot this fall. And so are all our statewide offices, attorney general, governor. Um, It's really important for your day to day life. In fact, I think some of the stuff that matters most on a daily basis gets done in your state capital, not in D.C. Yeah, I'd say that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for your time. Sounds great. Thanks for doing this. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures, and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. Here on Soundboard, we love to introduce you to people in the area doing interesting and important work. So we're excited to introduce you to Dr. Dina Jennings. 
She's a physician, a musician, a banjo luthier, a healer, a music festival organizer, and she's even farming and restoring a large farm here in Central Virginia. I'm going to hand things over to our assistant producer, Corey Harris, who sat down with Dr. Jennings. Okay, well, please introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Hi, I'm Dina Jennings, and I am a physician, a musician, um, all-around healer, I like to think. And um, I have a small primary care practice in a small town in Central Virginia, in Orange. And then I make banjos and play music. Mm. <laughs> what came first? Oh, to be honest, probably making the banjos because I started playing guitar when I was in uh, junior high school and I'm left-handed. So I was always tinkering on my guitar to make it suitable for me to play left-handed. So I started tinkering around there and uh, the, the medicine came later. Interesting. Where did you come up? Where did you grow, grow up? I grew up in Akron, Ohio, mm -hmm. and when I was growing up in Akron, it was at its heyday of the being the rubber capital of the world, and my father worked for one of the major rubber companies. My mom worked for a bank. It was about as close to the Brady Bunch as you could get. <laughs> yeah. So what brought you to this region? I met my husband, and he had a farm here. He had retired and it was searching for land and he found just the right land that he wanted for just the right price just outside of Orange in a town called Nason's. I was living in Canada when we met and I was planning what he had been doing for 15 years already. So we decided I would shut down everything in Canada and then move here. Amazing. Wow, so how many years ago was that? Ooh, feels like a lifetime. It's been seven years, I think, oh. seven or eight years, oh, eight okay. years now. Okay, mm -hmm. wow, amazing. So tell us about the farm. The farm is a really special place. It is a um, land that was originally lived on and worked by the Monacan people. They were the mound builders in this area. They had it, of course, until colonization. Then it was owned by families of presidents and colonels. At that time, of course, it was worked for tobacco by enslaved people. What we are trying to do with that piece of land, and it's quite a sizable piece of land, is take it back to its original form. We have Climax Forest. We've built trails. Um, we've got a huge labyrinth that people can walk. We have campsites. And then about of maybe a quarter or a third of the land, we grow medicinal herbs and fruits. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like you're a healer in many different dimensions, <laughs> not only of the body, but of the general environment and of the land as well. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where I started. I wanted to be a park ranger. When I went to college and I came out a doctor, it's a long, crazy story. But um, so from fourth grade on, I knew I wanted to be a park ranger. And honestly, my, where we live, our farm is bigger than some parks that I worked in. 
when did you start your pursuit of your medical career? When did that kick off? When I entered undergrad, I was going in with an environmental science degree. The end of my sophomore year, the president, the current administration at that time, decided to zap just about everything that was going on in the Department of Interior. And I looked at my future, which I had been mapping out, <laughs> as we sometimes do, and everything was zapped. That's when park rangers became park police. You know, they had to start carrying guns and doing all that sort of thing. Uh, not everywhere, but some places. And I, I looked at that and I said, that's not for me. And the parks I had planned on going to lost most of their funding. So being a a young person, I looked at my schedule to see what I could switch to without losing a year, because that's all you think about. <laughs> and the only thing I could switch to was pre-med or poetry creative writing. And if you knew my father, there was no way he was going to approve <laughs> poetry creative writing. He was already struggling with the, with the uh, park ranger writ. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I did. I grudgingly applied to medical school and I grudgingly got in and I grudgingly did the first couple of years until when I started doing the actual um, clinical time, spending time with patients, I realized I was right where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I've loved it ever since, 30 years now. I respect. That's beautiful. <laughs> so tell us about your human rights work with United Nations. What is your NGO? Um, My NGO is called Imani Works Corporation, Mm -hmm. and we are a human rights advocacy group. So that takes us out of the realm of lobbying. We don't lobby, but we do advocate for human rights everywhere. Mostly that takes the form of education. Uh, Most people don't realize there are 30 human rights, so that keeps us busy. For example, one of the human rights is your right to play. And no one ever thinks of that. But we do. We have a right as human beings to play. And um, so we try to uh, do educational programming. We do um, petitioning. We used to do direct action, but we don't do that so much anymore because I'm a little older now. (laughs) And uh, we do a lot of letter writing. And in the process, I gained a relationship with the United Nations, and we had the opportunity to apply to do consultative status for the United Nations, which gives us the opportunity to answer their questions they want to know from people with who are in the trenches, and that's what we are. So they want to know even from small towns, so they'll send us questionnaires or interviews or and then we respond, so that's how we consult with them. Has this given you occasion to travel and see other countries as well? Or? Um, not so much, mm-hmm. because uh, as a consultant, we're consulting for the sake of uh, U.S. opinions. Um, so it does take me different places across the country, but not too many places around the world. And you know, who knows one day I'd love to, it'd be interesting to be a diplomat. Mm. I don't know what all that entails, but that would be interesting Mm. to do one day. Tell us about your work with building the instruments, the banjos, the music. 
uh, it was early 2010, I think, I found a banjo. A good friend of mine, you may know him, and Andy Cohen, mm-hmm. blues. Uh, he was listening to my music, and he said, "Do you realize you're playing Black Appalachian music on a guitar?" I said, "What do you mean? What's that?" <laughs> and we didn't have a name for what we did. My mom was from Appalachia, but we just played the music we played growing up. And that sent me on a trek. He sent me to Library of Congress, and I got a bunch of CDs, and that got me really interested in the banjo, and I found out what banjo music is. I made a trip to elderly music and found this beautiful, beautiful banjo that was handmade on the wall. And I looked on the back, and it was made by Jeff Menzies, great luthier. Yeah, he's in Jamaica now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... I saw he was doing workshops. He was living in Canada at the time, so I signed up for his workshop. Well, he called me about two weeks before the workshop and said, everybody canceled. We want to know, do you still want to come by yourself? I said, of course. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I went up, and I took the workshop about two or three days in. I said, I really want to apprentice with you. And uh, he said, well, let's talk about that. I said, if there were some place around here available to just rent, I would just start now. The next day, the apartment across the street from his home came up for rent. (laughs) So I said, nope, that's it. So I rented the apartment, stayed up there for four years. And uh, yeah, it was great. He encouraged me to start to do my own thing with the banjo mm-hmm. and with sculpting mm-hmm. and his his uh background is sculpting mm. and so i learned what i needed to as a luthier but i had the added advantage from him of learning sculpting as well well shifting back to charlottesville i was wondering what do you when we look at our community what is the greatest need that you see what are the things that you yourself are trying to fight against mm-hmm. I think we need to break barriers that exist as a result of old thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, I think newer thinking is a little more open and a little more embracing of one another. But some of that old thinking keeps even those of us who think about embracing one another keeps us at bay. And, And I think it keeps us from really seeing what we can do creatively for human rights, for all the different, musically, in the arts, it keeps us from being able to do the absolute best that we can do. Mm-hmm. And how do you think arts has played a role in the healing of this community? We know, mm-hmm. of course, the rally that happened here a few years ago and all the trauma associated with that. I think it's had a very big role. People are declaring who they are, and more clear about their message. You know, in order for anything to grow, the seed has to die. And I see the seed of nonsense just dying everywhere. We're seeing the death throes of it because it gets louder and angrier and uh, more (laughs) more tenacious, but it's dying. And what's growing as a result is just beautiful as far as what I can see. Um, You think of like some of the bands that have come out of this area 
and how with the things that happened here in Charlottesville, they said, no, this is our home. This is what we stand for. And though they may have stood for that all along, you didn't really know that until all of this happened. And so now people are standing up. Someone who maybe has just met you for the first time sees all these different things you do. Mm -hmm. How do you see your mission as far as how do they integrate? How do they coalesce? I see the work that I do as light in a very dark world. If you see that light because you have problems with your blood pressure and your diet and you need me to talk to you about that, great. If you see that light because you've always wanted to have a banjo and you want to have a custom-made one, great. If you see that light because you want to come out and walk the trails and do the labyrinth, great. (laughs) However you see that light, then I say, good. (laughs) So what is next? What do you have on the horizon that you would like people to know about? Oh, well... The thing is coming up. Okay. Tell us a, about the thing. <laughs> that's a big music festival. My husband and I started a while back, and it's the Afrolatchian On Time Music Gathering, mm-hmm. and we call it On Time because old time has been co-opted that mm-hmm. word. So we call it On Time, and everybody knows what On Time mm-hmm. is. <laughs> so it's Afrolatchian On Time Music Gathering. It always happens in September. And it starts as a retreat for black string instrument players and their allies who have been working all year long and traveling and doing festivals and doing camps. It's just a time for them to come to the farm and relax. And then we end all of that nice time of camaraderie and relaxation with a concert for the public. And so that's that's, uh, a lot of people say, well, I understand the thing is a week long. No, the earlier part of it is just for those those musicians who are invited, um, those who I've built relationship with through the years. And in order to get in on that retreat part, a musician needs to come at least to one concert, mm. and then they're invited the following year. One thing we're doing a little different with the thing this year is we're having three mini concerts and then the larger concert's going to be online. All the proceeds for our concerts are to benefit the Mutual Aid Society for the musicians who are in the thing. And um, we're up to well over 50 musicians now. Well, finally, um, any contact information you want to share? You can see everything that we're talking about and doing at imaniworks.org. That's Imani, which means faith in Swahili. I-M-A-N-I works, W-O-R-K-S dot org. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner-McGee. Our assistant producers this week are Sarah Howarth and Corey Harris. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard. <laughs> <laughs>